This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host, Steve Ford, WB8IMY. For just about as long as anyone can remember in the amateur radio satellite community, geostationary has been the holy grail. And if you're not aware of what the word geostationary means, it means a satellite that, from our perspective here on the ground, appears to hover at one point in the sky. And the way that it does this is that the satellite is positioned about 22,000 miles above Earth's equator, and it rotates, or it orbits, if you will, at the same speed roughly that the Earth turns. So as a result, once again, it appears to be fixed in the sky. However, getting to geostationary orbit is not a very easy thing to do. It takes a while to get out there, and then it takes specialized technology to position it and to keep it in position for years and years and years. So hams have dreamt of this again for a long time, but so far no one has been able to achieve it, at least not with a satellite that is strictly amateur radio produced, designed, built, and so on. But on November 18th, 2018, the satellite Eshale-2 was launched from the Kennedy Space Center, and it was a satellite uh, created mainly by the Qatar government, and it was designed for communications of various kinds, and it was placed into geostationary orbit at approximately 26 degrees east longitude, which positioned it essentially over Central Africa in the Middle East. Now, what set this satellite apart from your ordinary communications bird was that thanks to the generosity of the Qatar government, hams have a transponder on board this satellite. And because it has a ham transponder on board, it was designated QO100 or Qatar Oscar 100. So suddenly, the Holy Grail was in our grasp. We had a satellite with a transponder in geostationary orbit. With its position over Central Africa, the footprint of QO100 extends all the way from Northern Europe down to Southern Africa. It extends east to Thailand and west to roughly eastern Brazil. And all the lucky amateur radio operators within that footprint can use this satellite, can use the transponder as a relay that is fixed in their sky 24-7, which is something that no other amateurs anywhere in the world can enjoy. So what sort of transponder is on board this thing? Well, the downlink is on 10 gigahertz. Specifically, it's a 250 kilohertz bandwidth linear transponder that ranges from 10.489.550 gigahertz to 10.489.800 gigahertz, to be specific. The uplink is on 2 gigahertz, specifically 2400.050 to 2400.300. This transponder is powerful. You don't need much energy to get to it. You don't need much of an antenna either. A typical station for QO100 consists of a dish about, oh, three feet across, roughly, about the same size as a dish you might see on your street that uh, people are using for uh, direct TV, 
Dish Network, something like that. On the uplink, that 2.4 gigahertz uplink, you need only 5 watts of power, which is really not all that great. The linear transponder supports single sideband and CW, again, in a 250 kilohertz bandwidth, which means a lot of conversing can take place. Most of it seems to be on single sideband. So just imagine what it would be like to have this satellite in your sky 24 hours a day. In other words, it would be like, well, it would be like having 20 meters constantly open. Sunrise to sunset around the clock. It wouldn't matter. You just point your antenna up at the satellite, key the mic, and away you go. i tell you what, let's take a listen to QO100. Sierra, this is uh, Tarif, and uh, my locator is uh, November Lima 53, Foxtrot Romeo. And uh, thank you for the call, and uh, have a nice weekend. Uh, 73, bye-bye. This guy's running a pileup, believe it or not, on a 10 gigahertz downlink on the satellite. It's remarkable. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I bet it does. Sounds like a de-expedition on 20 meters and on 10 gigahertz with 2.4 gigahertz up. Now, why can't we have something like that over North America or North and South America? Well, we could, but it's a huge financial investment well beyond the capabilities of any organization devoted to amateur radio, even the ARRL for that matter. What it will likely take is something like QO100, and by that I mean a commercial satellite that has worked out a deal with us amateurs here in the United States and Central and South America to perhaps lease a transponder. It could happen. You never know. I'm speaking with Bob Allison, WB1GCM, the ARRL Assistant Laboratory Manager, and we're talking about test data that appeared in technical correspondence in the January issue of QST Magazine. And Bob, you've been researching the output of handheld transceivers and measuring their output for years and years. What does this data represent? Well, it's test data taken at various conventions, but mainly the Dayton Hamvention in Xenia, Ohio, uh, since uh, 2015. And that was the last time we compiled test data of handheld transceivers. It's a representation, a cross-section of what uh, people are using. Uh, the samples came to me uh, in person uh, by people that want to know what their emissions were out of their handhelds. So they just walked up to you and yeah, they gave a, you their handheld? Yeah, and... we had a booth set up at these conventions that consisted of a spectrum analyzer, the proper attenuators, and, uh, of course, data sheets where we wrote down the test data and we actually printed out screenshots of the spectrum analyzer. And what have you found? Well, we found what we expected. Uh, the cheaper handhelds tend to not comply with FCC Part 97 rule about spectral purity. That is, you see, handheld transceivers and all amateur transmitters have to uh, pass this test of spectral purity. Uh, on the HF bands, for instance, you need 43 dB of harmonic and spurious emission suppression in order to comply with this FCC rule. In uh, the VHF region, 
specifically 50 to 225 megahertz, the requirements are a little bit more stringent. What so, are we talking about? Well, uh, it all depends about how much power you're putting out harmonically. In other words, the highest harmonic level can only be at the 25 microwatt level. So that boils down to a 5-watt handheld transceiver can only have a, a harmonic as high as approximately 53 dB below the fundamental transmission. Okay. So it needs at least 53 dB of harmonic and spurious emission suppression. Looking at the spectrum of handheld transceivers that you've tested, mm -hmm. generally speaking, how did they fare? Well, again, it's what we expected. The cheaper handhelds tended to not comply with this FCC rule. Specifically, one brand that you'll see in QST is the Baofeng. Uh, consistently through the years, they have uh, tended to not comply with this rule. And if you uh, look on the technical correspondence article, you'll see that only 9% of them were uh, able to pass this FCC rule. Wow. There was a large percentage, of course, that were borderline, and we consider borderline at the FCC limit for that power output level. Again, 5 watts would equate to roughly about 53 dB of harmonic and spurious emission suppression. And so uh, uh, there's a good chunk of them that were borderline, but a large percentage that were just purely noncompliant. That is, they missed the FCC limit by uh, 3 dB or more, and they became noncompliant. Now, the dirty transceivers weren't necessarily all Chinese-made. In other words, there were some Chinese-made that actually, it looked like, according to the data, actually passed. Oh, absolutely. And, and also that these handhelds, the, uh, the ones that did not comply or didn't pass, uh, they work perfectly fine on the 70-centimeter band, where, by the way, there is no uh, limits on uh, spurious or harmonic uh, limits. There, the FCC rule only applies to uh, transmitters of 50 to 225 megahertz. Oh, okay. Actually, it's, uh, it's 30 to 225 megahertz is the, where the rule is. And strangely enough, the FCC doesn't have uh, a, a spectral purity compliance rule of uh, above 225 megahertz. Now, what sort of equipment were you using to conduct these tests? Well, the spectrum analyzer used is a Regal DSA-815TG. And it's a small, lightweight spectrum analyzer. And before we take it out to conventions, we have it calibrated by a calibration laboratory. And so they check its accuracy because we want to make sure, as always, our test data is accurate. Okay. And are you going to keep doing this at other, I mean, at, at Dayton Hamvention and other conventions going forward? I believe so. Uh, until I see that all handhelds are complying with uh, FCC rules, I'd like to see the ARL laboratory continuing to do this kind of work at conventions. Now, I'm going to play the devil's advocate for a moment, Bob, mm -hmm. and I'm going to ask you a, a pointed question, okay. and that is, why should I care? I mean, if I'm an average ham out there, okay, maybe my handheld is wildly out of compliance. What difference does it make? In, in the big scheme of things, um, it's very, very, very important for all amateur transmitters to comply with this FCC rule. And the reason being is the uh, extra signals that are emitted, their harmonics and uh, the other signals which are considered spurious emissions, 
they're transmitted along with the desired signal that you want to transmit. Every time you press the push to talk button on that handheld, you transmit on the fundamental frequency, that's the frequency you want to transmit on. Then you have two times the frequency, three times the frequency, four times the frequency. Those are harmonics, and those harmonic levels have to be as low as possible. If they're not, or if there are other spurious emissions coming out of that handheld that are high, the spurious emissions and harmonics will and can interfere with other important radio services. Absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, it's only going to take one instance where a handheld interferes with an important radio service, such as uh, EMT, fire, police. If it interferes and the press gets a hold of this news, oh, it's going to be a radio amateur was jamming the police. And that's the kind of bad press that we don't need. And that's the kind of fodder that commercial entities like to see because it proves to them that amateur radio operators are using cheap equipment and that these entities will be better users of that radio spectrum. So we must, must, must keep our radio service clean as possible. Absolutely. Thank you for all the work you do, Bob. Uh, you're very welcome, Steve. Thank you for letting me be here. Late last year, I heard from Harry Bloomberg, W3YJ, and he had written me about an interesting project that he had uh, cobbled together, and it allowed him to use a Raspberry Pi as the core of a remote station operation. And what made this different was not just the fact that it was based on a Raspberry Pi, and a very inexpensive Raspberry Pi, by the way. He used a unit that costs about, uh, I believe, about 35 bucks. And for those of you that don't know what a Raspberry Pi is, and you know, you take it for granted that just about everybody knows what a Raspberry Pi is these days, but just in case, it's a small, very inexpensive microcomputer that runs primarily on Linux or various versions or distributions of Linux. And this little microcomputer can do a number of remarkable things, and it has evolved very rapidly over the last, oh, I would say five years or so. Now, Harry has combined the Raspberry Pi, specifically a Raspberry Pi 4, which is the latest version and tends to be the most powerful, with software that some of you may be familiar with called FL Digi, a digital software package that actually has quite a bit of uh, functionality beyond just running digital modes. And he's also using a final piece of remote software called No Machine. And No Machine's pretty popular in the business world, and it uses the NX protocol to connect securely with various computers. And it can also stream audio, which is very important for remote station control. So basically, he's combined all of this together. He's using the Raspberry Pi 4 as a server for his remote-controlled station, and it's working remarkably well. If you pick up the March issue of QST Magazine, which uh, will be coming out not long after this podcast airs, go to the Eclectic Technology column, and you'll see a full description of exactly what Harry has done. And try it yourself. It doesn't cost much, and it's pretty interesting. I'm speaking with Carl Luchelswab, K9LA, and he's the ARRL Vice Director for the Central Division. Is that correct, Carl? Yes, that's correct. And in addition to all of that, though, Carl is an expert when it comes to propagation and solar activity. So I wanted to talk to you, Carl. We've 
heard a lot lately about the appearance of the cycle 25 sunspots. Uh, can you define, first of all, I guess, the difference between a cycle 24 and a cycle 25 sunspot? Sure, that's, uh, that's not too hard to do. When a new cycle starts, the sunspots emerge at the higher solar latitudes. And as the cycle progresses, the sunspots emerge closer and closer to the equator on the sun. Okay. So that is difference that allows us to discern whether it's a new sunspot or an old sunspot. And does the magnetic polarity of the sunspot differ in some way? I'd heard that from somewhere. You have to remember now sunspots are a loop of magnetic fields that go come out of the sun and go back into the sun. <clears throat> and we can measure the polarity uh, the the loop coming out and the loop going back in, and that also allows us to tell where the sunspots, which solar cycle the sunspots are coming from. Okay. Uh, it's because uh, the uh, magnetic polarity reverses every solar cycle, so that makes uh, you know two two things that tell us if it's a cycle twenty five spot or cycle twenty four spot. Well, does this mean that we are now into cycle twenty five or not? Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> Uh, if, if we look back at cycle 24, we'll, we'll see uh, the minimum between cycle 23 and 24. We'll see that cycle 24 sunspots started showing up even when cycle 23 sunspots were still going. And that's happening here again. We're oh. still seeing 24 spots, but we've seen a few cycle 25 spots. And probably for about a year or so, at least based on historical data, We'll see uh, sunspots from both cycles, but so pretty soon cycle 25 will take over and dominate, and then we'll be on the way. Well, can I put you on the spot, Carl? Can I ask you to get out your crystal ball and tell us what the future holds? Sure. Um, <laughs> it's based on historical data and, and the current data. It doesn't look like we've reached solar minimum yet, which generally is when the smooth sunspot number numerically minimizes. So we may have a couple more months before that happens or several more months. Oh, but the, not, uh, not years like a, you know, an extended solar minimum. <laughs> <laughs> One of the issues is the past three solar cycles have been double peaked. In other words, the smooth sunspot number maximizes, then it takes a dip, and it comes back up again. Now, that kind of performance doesn't show in our early solar data, any of the data that we have recorded. So it appears that the sun is in new territory as far as our uh, observation time frame, which is you know back to uh, 1750 or so. Oh, so something weird is happening? Something unusual is happening. Uh, you know, what does it mean? I don't know. But if you remember, cycle 24 had many predictions from very low numbers to very high numbers. But finally, uh, solar scientists uh, realized that the extreme length of the solar minimum between 23 and 24 means a small solar cycle. And eventually they agreed that 24 was going to be small. And we're seeing the same thing happening. The minimum between cycles 24 and 25 is very similar to the minimum between cycles 23 and 24. Uh, looks like it's going to be around five years, and that's based on my definition of solar minimum, which is when the smooth sunspot number is below 20. 
I see. So I think right now all solar scientists agree that we're going to have a small solar cycle. Just to the degree to which that happens is kind of in question. And one thing I can, you know, I, I can point out that the NOAA NASA solar cycle prediction panel in, in December came out with their prediction for cycle 25. And uh, what they predict is the solar min will occur in April 2020. So we're still headed down. The maximum will be in July 2025, and it's going to peak at about a smooth sunspot number of 115, which is quite similar to what cycle 24 did. Yes. But there's also data from the Space Weather Prediction Center, which is part of NOAA, that kind of suggests that solar moon's going to continue through 2022, and that kind of suggests a very small cycle 25. Oh. I'll let you know in about 2023 what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All I can say. Well, I was hoping you would give us good news, Carl. This is mediocre well, news is, at best. Yeah, there is good news. Uh, if you remember, if we do have something similar to cycle 24, there was good F2 propagation on 10 meters and 6 meters on the second peak. That's true. Uh, so we could probably expect... Uh, for cycle 25, if it's similar to 24, that we'll see good 10-meter F2 propagation and 6-meter F2 propagation again. Now, the duration won't be for, you know, uh, several years, but it'll be there in the winter and fall months. So we just got to remember that. And also we have to remember that even though the sunspots may be at zero and the solar fluxes, you know, may be down around 65 to 70, there's still enough extreme ultraviolet to keep 20 meters and 17 meters to a certain extent open during the day worldwide and in the evening. So there's still lots of propagation on 20 meters and 17 meters on down. Take advantage of it. The low bands are uh, usually doing pretty good at solar minimum. There's been lots of good activity on 160 meters. And, of course, the digital modes are probably going to make this solar minimum the most active in history on the higher bands because of their signal-to-noise ratio advantage over CW and sideband. Yes. So there's 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 lots of stuff you can do. Uh, you know, getting on 15 and 12 and 10 might be kind of iffy, but there will be occasional openings to uh, to the south, you know, South America, Caribbean, Central America, and also to VKZL because. Those paths stay in the equatorial ionosphere, which is the most robust part of the ionosphere, even at solar minimum. So uh, there's still lots of activity. Yes. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people will uh, come back into ham radio when cycle 25 gets going, though, and the higher bands start producing S9 signals. Well, that's better news then, Carl. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech. Produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time. <laughs>